This is the Tech EU podcast, where we discuss some of the most interesting stories from the European tech scene. Subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasting fix these days. In this episode, Andre Degler sits down with Frontline Ventures partner Finn Murphy. Let's just start with you introducing yourself. So what's your name and what is it that uh, you've been doing, let's say, over the past 10 years? That last 10 years. Okay. So, um, hey, um, thanks for having me. Thanks so much, Andrew, for having me on the podcast. Uh, so my name is Finn Murphy. I'm a partner at Frontline Ventures at the moment. We're like an early stage B2B software investor investing in like mostly European companies, but also occasionally US companies and trying to sort of help European B2B software companies accelerate their growth into what we believe is like one of the biggest markets for them to sell into in the US. Um, I've been here for about three and a half years uh, prior to that. I was uh, working working at a consumer fintech business doing kind of product management and growth marketing that me and uh, a group of friends had sort of like, so well, we'd been acquired out of college. We started a like SaaS company selling software to universities while we were still in college. Um, and then that kind of like, again, we started in college, so we didn't really know what we were doing and got lucky with uh, knowing the team at this consumer fintech where we got a sort of soft landing. Uh, but then, yeah, prior to that, I was studying uh, mechanical engineering and maths in university and just kind of like probably like, I don't know, like a lot of Europeans, like when I was in college, the sort of done thing, well, not done thing was like the aspirational job was to go work for a McKinsey or a BCG or somewhere investment banking. And I think around the time I was coming in, startups were like just starting to be cool. Um, uh, so I was like, oh, this startup thing seems a lot more interesting. So I went down that path. Right. So I, I read this uh, this uh, profile of yours uh, on uh, Independent, rather phone in one. Uh, so it had this anecdote about uh, uh, the whole aspiration of uh, being an entrepreneur coming to you when you were watching uh, the, the the movie. Uh, was it Silicon Valley, bro? Well, it's a social network, social network, right? Oh, uh, the social, the social network. Yeah, yeah. Like, if I suppose it's like you know, I was growing up in Ireland, like. Like my dad was a pilot. My mom was like a craftsperson artist. Like there weren't a lot of like the small business owners and like that you would know would like own shops or like lawyers practices. So like the idea of like starting a technology company, there had been like a wave of technology companies that had been started in Ireland during the dot-com boom. But like there hadn't really been that many around the time I was sort of growing up. So you didn't have a lot, a lot of sort of like aspirational figures. Um, and then like, yeah, again, I think I was like a pretty impressionable age when the like the social network came out. I was like 19 years old. I was like, what do I want to do? I was like 19, 20. I was like, what do I want to do? Like Dublin had actually just the, the web summit, which was a tech conference that now happens in Lisbon, was happening in Dublin at that point in time. And like it was around like the like time when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, I got to go and I watched the social network and I was volunteering on pub crawls for the web summit, bringing like VCs and founders of these like tech companies around to just drink pints of Guinness and whiskey basically around the streets of Dublin. I remember and those. It, yeah, they were good. They were good pub crawls. And I kind of just had the view. I came to the sense I was like, wait, why would I want to go work for McKinsey or why would I want to go <laughs> like work for someone else? This this seems like this is so much cooler. These people are like making shit that people actually want to use. Um, and that was sort of what led me to 
like the social network, the whole thing where it's like, oh, a million dollars isn't cool, like a billion dollars is cool. But I think like for a lot of people, like when you saw that movie, it was the first like, oh, tech, like that's a way more, that actually looks like a really interesting job. And I think it's like kind of important that culturally those like things, like the jobs that we do are portrayed in a like cultural light as being cool because like not every 18 you know a lot of 18 19 like even like 16 17 year olds like they're kind of looking what do i want to do and often like what's happening in the culture around them has like a pretty big impact on what they end up doing yeah i understand at least for me it did <laughs> so uh but uh, so yeah i i understand the entrepreneurial aspiration and uh still uh some years later you actually uh, joined the other side of uh, the table and uh, went to work uh, for frontline ventures uh what was the rationale uh, for that decision then so the the company i've been working for at the time was like again it was like classic just startup that didn't work out co-founders didn't get along like product market fit we were struggling with product market fits so there were like retention issues and then the whole thing kind of just like went like downhill really quickly but a few of us stayed around to try to sort of keep the company going or try to sell it but like i hadn't been paid in three months and after about three months of not getting paid and living with my parents i was like okay this is probably time to probably time to call it and get another job um so i thought about starting another company um but i kind of figured i was i'd spent a year and like would probably just burn out if i did another company again um so i applied for like a bunch of different stuff whether it was like product manager roles uh growth marketing roles which is what i'd been doing at that business mm -hmm. and then one of the jobs i saw open and a friend of mine actually convinced me to apply for was like a junior investor position at frontline the fund i work for now and i like really didn't think I was gonna like I'd never even thought about venture like that wasn't the cool side of what I saw company building was it was like making things that people use that like became like could become like culturally relevant to a very large group of people um while VC just kind of felt like a back office thing but then I spoke to a few people about like what the job entailed how like why it was interesting and you know it was like other friends, my like mentors of mine said, it's like, look, if you go into, if you want to start another company, go into VC for like 18 months, meet a lot of people, build a network. And then when you want to go raise money for your next thing, you'll be really well positioned to do that. And like, that was like three and a half years ago. So obviously I've like failed dramatically on my get out after 18 months and start my own company. Um, but it is like, I think like part of the reason I failed to like go and start a company is like, it's, VC gets a lot, of, I think it gets a lot of shit on like, you know, people who are like, like not necessarily bought into what the founders are doing, can like treat their founders badly, but like fundamentally, like the people who do this job really well do it because you get to facilitate other people being success. Like you get to facilitate the success of other people. You get to spend your day like meeting interesting people, building interesting things. And you're in a very privileged position where if you think that what they're doing is really is really cool you get to fund them you get to work with them and you get to spend you know you get to spend a huge amount of time with those people um so i think like that kind of led me to stay like to stay here and stay in the job because like it is true that like there aren't like there are a lot of vcs who aren't particularly forward thinking and like who founders are probably rightly so being annoyed at but i think like it's kind of up to new people who go into the job and like new funds that come on the scene to change that and make it so that like 
the VCs out there are there for the community and like particularly in Europe, like VC is very much so gone from a private equity mindset to more of a US mindset in probably like the last four or five years. And that's like, you know, I think that that is only we're still like a couple of years behind the US in a lot of ways, but like we're progressively accelerating and becoming a better place to start a company. Right. So I get it. And do you spend uh, most of your time in Ireland? Uh, no. So we like our, our first fund was like primarily focused on Ireland and a little bit in the UK. Then our second fund was kind of more evenly split between Ireland and the UK and doing quite a bit in Europe. And now we've like effectively our third we're in our third 70 million euro seed fund so that we invest all across europe now kind of like evenly split between ireland uk and the and the continent so like the last couple of investments i've made at frontline have been in a danish company in copenhagen a norwegian company in oslo a french company in paris but the founders live in lisbon and i think like what we're seeing like post pandemic is you know, there's this idea of like London and Berlin and Paris being the hubs and, you know, Dublin has an ecosystem around it as well with some really great companies, but like the best companies can crop up anywhere, can crop up anywhere around Europe. So while it's great to be in Dublin and in Ireland and know the whole ecosystem there and know that as that continues to grow out, it's going to get easier for people to start companies and easier for them to build, like scale those companies to be successful. I think from our perspective as an investor, you'd be like kind of crazy to not look at what's happening in Europe. And like, we're probably not even looking far enough into like, whether it's spending more time in Eastern Europe, spending more time in Southern Europe, spending more time in like the Balkans or Turkey or wherever. Um, so I think that's the like, you know, it's your each ecosystem as it starts to perform and become more interesting. As an investor, you're looking in, the prices get higher, the founders get more savvy, and like you can still do great, you can still be in great companies and see those companies be successful. But the overall opportunity, there's just ends up with a lot more investors fighting for a pie that doesn't get that much bigger. So you end up, I think, looking and spreading yourself more across like the rest of Europe, where there's a whole lot of interesting things going on. Yeah, I understand. And uh, but do you but you still don't have uh, uh, partners outside of the UK and Ireland? Am I right? Uh, so we've one partner in San Francisco at the moment. Um, so we have like our Europe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, oh, I meant I meant Europe, oh, of course. Yeah, 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 no, just Europe. within Europe. No. Um, and like, you know, we've spoken to a bunch of different funds about this, about like, do you need an office in Berlin or do you need an office in Paris to be successful there? And I think like up until COVID, I would have said 100%, like the best French deals, the French funds know about first, the best German deals, the German, like the like companies, the German like funds know about first. Um, I think that's changed with like founder perspectives and like founders Founders, I think, increasingly want funds that have a more international outlook and want to see them like, you know, basically like can look at a company and see the best version of that company's self and where it can be and pitch a vision into the future. And, you know, oftentimes is the case like those companies, like those companies, if they're going to be as successful as they promise they're going to be, you're going to be inherently international. So like, I think over time, if we want to, you know, I think if you want to be the best VC in Paris, you have to be in France, you have to be in France. I think if you want to be particularly at early stage, if you want to be the best VC in Sweden, like you need to be spending a lot of time in Stockholm. But I think for a lot of the pan European, like we don't need to see every great deal 
in France, or like every, we don't need to see every great company in France, but we will see good deep tech and like not deep tech, but like developer tools and infrastructure companies in France, because we have a specialty in that area. That's what I focus on. And those founders will look for someone with some kind of specialty around that. So I think that's that's what we're seeing more of. Like there's and there's a bunch of funds that used to send like junior people to spend three months in one country, three months in another country, build a network and talk to and kind of like do the sort of pan-European strategy that way. But I think there's kind of there's many different ways to do it and see all the interesting companies in all different cities around Europe and different countries around Europe. All right. And uh, what I also wanted to ask is, so you've been around for, what, three and a half years now, and uh, uh, you've been a partner for half a year, give or take? About since, like, June, so, my gosh, like, not like, three, four, yeah, yeah about, four, about four, four months now. So I'm not sure if it's too early to ask, but still, uh, so do you already, can you already name, let's say, your best investment decisions and your worst investment decisions? Um, in three and a half years, I would say, like, what are the best investment decisions? Like the, I, I don't like specifically. Probably not. Like probably not. Like I was, I was uh, this conversation with another VC in the US who said like his best performing investment, seed investment ever. He had written, he had written off twice. Like he literally, like they they marked it down to zero because he was like that company is dead. And then things just change and happen. And I think it's like very hard to sort of predict the future as a VC around any company. But I think like the worst decisions I've probably made as an investor are thinking I know more about a market than I really do. Like oftentimes, this is, so before I got into VC, I worked for a consumer fintech business. So part of that in product management and part of that was like talking to all the banking as a service players, talking to the KYC providers, talking to like the various suppliers of all of the companies that went into fintech. Then when I got into VC, I looked at a bunch of these companies and when you know, like I met their competitors, I understood what they were doing, but it kind of makes you more cynical because you're like, oh, like that's not really serving that problem. That's not really serving that niche. And like, it's a, it's a weird aspect to like making you a bad investor where like the more you know about something, the less likely you are to invest in it. And those are probably where like, the worst investment decisions I made are like the things I didn't invest in when like I was like, oh, these people are really good, but that just doesn't really make sense with my view of the world. And it's kind of a humbling, not a humbling experience, but like as a VC, you just realize, you know, so little, like at the end of the day, like all of these markets are so complex and they're changing so quickly that you can only ever really know so much. And the founders will always know so much more than you're ever going to know. So like trying to boil it down to like the best investment decisions I've ever made are like people who 40 minutes into the first call, you're just like, holy shit, this person is so impressive. Like these people are so impressive. These are people that I want to spend time with. These are people that I would like, you know, ask yourself, asking yourself the question of like, would I want to work for these people? And like, in every case where I've said, yes, I would definitely want to work for these people, those companies, like, I mean, like at the end of the day, like you don't because you're in a cushy VC job and joining an early stage startup as an employee is really hard work. But like, you know, if in the like mindset, and it's funny 
the companies I have invested in where I probably would have been more like, ah, uh, like the market's super interesting or, oh, like, oh, the vision is really interesting. But, you know, you ask yourself the question of like, do I, am I, I, I is there like a magnetism to this founder team or like a passion that they have that's so different to everyone else? Those are probably the ones that you look back on and you're like, hmm, that was it could still go well, but it's not the ones that you're like fired up about, uh, like spending all of your time with. And speaking of what you just mentioned about uh, joining the startup, okay, joining maybe not, but uh, uh, would you are you still considering that at some point you will still get out of VC and go back to being an entrepreneur and building stuff yourself? Um, I think it's like it's a really hard question because as you spend more, you like you do learn. You, you see again, you know, it's this idea of like you see if you know a lot about a market, you're probably less likely to invest in it. Like as you see all of the startups in a VC seat, you see how random it can be and how sort of like just someone got this timing right. Someone got this, like they just were so persistent. They eventually got the timing right. And I think it's like the longer you spend in the industry, the harder it makes it to leave unless you just saw something that was so interesting that you had to go and do it. So like, you know, there, I think there's like historical examples of VCs leaving to start companies and go back and become operate, go back and become operational. Um, but it's, it's one of those things where like, I don't think I'd ever, it's like one of the weird, I don't think I've ever had like a, I never had a desire to like start my own fund, which is like a lot of people go into VC with that view. Like the interesting part of VC is like, I, you know, there's the VC is a product effectively. The founders are customer. We have two sets of customers. We have our limited partners who are our customers who we make money for. And then there are the founders who are our customers who we sell money to. And like that's, I think a lot of people sometimes forget that. Like our job is to sell money in exchange for equity and buy chunks of your business. So with founders being the customers, I, I like executing on a, like selling that product. Um, I don't sit, I don't spend my time sitting down and being like, what are the, you know, what are the new products? What are the interesting products? How can you like bring different financial products to market? I probably spend more time thinking about like, what's an interesting software tool in that case. But I think that's like the biggest thing over time, it becomes harder and harder to like make a jump because you realize how irrational being a founder is. Like there is like, and it's why you have so much respect for them, but like, no matter what anyone tells you, like, if you're talented enough to build an amazing company, to build an amazing company that can raise VC money and generate venture, venture level returns, there are so many jobs that are so cushy that you can make so much more money in. So you kind of have to be that way in class, like, you know you have to be that way inclined and you have to be that irrational. And maybe I'll like, maybe I'll have a like moment of madness and just say, it's like, Oh no, I have to go do this thing. But it's like, you know, can you predict Would I ever say it's like, Oh yes, no, I plan on being completely irrational in two years and doing this probably not. Uh, but it's definitely, it's something that I think if you're, if you're a VC who, it's something that I think is worth thinking about. Like, would you ever, if you're an investor, it's like, would I ever start a company like this? Would I ever go down this road? Because it again, makes you think, oh God, like it just always gives you more respect for the founders who are actually doing it and going out there. Right.
Yeah, that makes it that makes a lot of sense. Okay, a totally different question. So I was thinking and I was reading that uh, profile of yours and uh, in general, uh, this conversation in particular, for example, is a result of a pitch that was made uh, to me initially by a uh, uh, communications uh, firm. So it seems to me that more, more and more over the past few years, the VCs uh, have been sort of waking up to the importance of, uh, uh, of PR, of marketing, uh, uh, of communications uh, in general, like what we used to have is that every VC would have a website that's uh, uh, very much uh, it's almost like uh, there are very similar let's put it this way and uh, pretty dry uh, you have the team picture you have the portfolio if you're lucky you have the contact page so now it seems like we are seeing more and more uh, VC uh, firms that uh, with their individual let's say faces uh, do you do you see this happening and do you uh, feel that this is because of uh, uh, this new generation of VCs coming in uh, which uh, is you're a part of yeah I think it's um I think it's partly as well a community so like it used to be if you had access to the money that was kind of the competitive differentiation like there weren't a lot of venture funds so the whole thing was like if you had access to LP money, you didn't really have to do all that much. Like if, you, if you've been on Benchmark's website, like Benchmark's website is just the Benchmark logo and their address, like that's it. And like, you know, at this stage, that's fine because, you know, they're Benchmark. But I think the actual communications side of it, like it's not just young people being more savvy or being brand builders. It's that as any market becomes like substantially more competitive like the margins get squeezed I, I think we're and there's always a balance of like the overall market is like the the, the market of startups you can invest in is getting much larger uh, that has gotten much larger over the past 20 years but also the number of funds you're competing with has got materially larger as well and it's sort of that balance like i think the number of funds and the amount of people who want to be investors is increasing at a higher rate than the number of good companies that are out there to actually fund. So everyone's comms strategy. So like we have a comms firm. I write blog. I write blogs. We all attend events. Everyone goes to like a billion coffee meetings to be like, hey, do you know so and so? Hey, how's everything going? And I think all of that is like, you know, if if I was the only fund in London sitting on the only pool of cash that anyone would give to an early stage startup i don't have to do anything i can just sit there and be like cool come to me and like that was you know rewind like 20 years ago like that was kind of what it was like and the founders have to come and find you now that's changed completely and like you know like this is one thing i'll say about the vc industry like people are making way too much money right now like it's insane like there are general partners and funds making like billions of dollars in carry like that at least like the way i like to believe free markets work is the reason why there are so many more venture funds and there's so much more going on is because people are seeing these people making these crazy amounts of money on like and they're saying it's like whoa hang on I want me some of that and what we're going to see is like you're not going to be able to sit on your laurels because founders don't really give a shit about your brand like they don't really give a shit about your 
like you know your previous portfolio companies they care about you how they heard about you what you're going to do for them in the same way like all products in like highly competitive markets eventually evolve so yeah salesforce has a dominant position in the market but there's a bunch of emerging contenders who could potentially displace them one day and i think vc is going to be like that going into the future is it's going to be hyper competitive people are going to start using more tech like techniques that they're the companies that they back who build products are also using and it's going to be a case of like can you disrupt the incumbents because they do have like massive pools of cash and you're seeing that with people like tiger and koto and some of the other hedge funds coming in and i think it's like will smaller brands also be able to do the same thing build a name for themselves build a brand onboard customers like you know i'm doing the top of funnel right now and like i think that's one of the weirder things about vc it's like your job is to when people say it's like my job is to sell money in exchange for cash and then basically try to turn like sell money in exchange for equity and then hopefully sort of steward that equity like and help that equity become even more valuable in the future so like it's the Andreessen media strategy is like, how do we play a different game? How do we like go to a bigger audience? But it's like the same thing you would see in any SaaS market that's just more developed. It's just like finally hitting VCs in general. So what's your game like at Frontline VC then? What's our game? Um, you, 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 don't, you, you, don't, you don't have your own media outlet yet. Uh, what is it then? Yeah, I think like at Seed in particular, like so much of it is down to, if, I don't know if you've ever seen, it was basically Creandum did a study once around like what VCs think is important to founders when they're picking a lead investor and what founders think is important. And like, it's completely mismatched. Like none of it actually, like VCs are like, oh, fund, fund brand is super important or like value added services. And like, basically the only thing founders care about, they care about personal relationship with the lead investor just basically, do I like this person that I'm going to have to spend a lot of time working with? Speed, how quickly is this person going to make a decision and deal terms? And, you know, I think if you actually looked at that study and said, I'm just going to design a fund around this, like the game that we probably have to play at Frontline is we move extremely fast. So like we've turned around a term sheet within 24 hours of meeting. At, like the first deal we did in France, where it's been notoriously difficult to win like the competitive and like investing companies in France. We met the founders on a Thursday afternoon and we gave them a term sheet on a Friday evening. And like, you know, I think some people would have said like, oh, like how could you possibly get to know the company? Like you obviously didn't do the work. And, you know, we said, it's like, no, like we understand the space like really well, we really liked the founding team. We had a bunch of like potential customers that we could in, like have conversations with and then introduce the company to. And from the founder's perspective, the speed didn't, and this is like something that was counterintuitive to a lot of VCs who I've spoken to, is like for the founders moving fast, they actually just thought they were like, oh, these people really get us and they really like us. They're not rushing us. It's just that they have such high conviction, they're able to make a decision fast. So I think those are things like where we're trying to compete on is we're just leaning into the top three things from that survey. It's like personal relationship from the founding team. Like we don't hire assholes. We all try to be really nice. Like we try to be really nice people. We treat all the companies we work with, like even the ones that don't work out, we try to make everything work for them over time. 
And I think that's like, again, your personal relationship is going to be there. And the more you can kind of put people on the fund, you know, out and do podcasts and write blogs, it gives founders a chance to sort of get to know them without, you know, I have like every fan, like loads of founders I speak to are like, oh, I read your blog on X. I listened to you on Y. So now at least I like, I might not necessarily know how you think, but like, I can probably get a sense that you're not a complete, like you're not like one of the worst people of all time, like, which, you know, comes across, I think in interviews comes across and anything else on speeds, like we'll move faster than other, uh, other people. Uh, like we'll move fa if we really are interested in the company and then on deal terms, like we've, I wrote a blog last year on valuations, like arguing that they were too low um, in August, which is kind of like you would think is insane for a VC to go out and be like, I think valuations for seed are way too low. But this is like where I'm saying like relative to like VCs should not be making billions of dollars in carry. Like that's absurd. Um, we should like, you know, it's great. Like you can make tens of millions of dollars and some people will make hundreds of millions. And that's actually completely like that is still insane. And the founders will make even more. But like, you know, you can afford to, if you look at where the public market comps are going, you look at how much bigger the software markets are over time, like we can afford, investors can afford to pay materially more than they did five or 10 years ago. Uh, if we continue to see a lot of the trends that we've seen over the last 10 to 20 years continue into the next 10. So that was kind of one of our things around our deal terms. Like I literally had a VC message me on one deal going, are you completely insane? And like now that company's already raised at three times the price that we went in. So I didn't actually get into that company, by the way. That's not like me being like, woo, I was a genius. We tried to blow up a deal at a way higher price. And the founder with the existing investors convinced the founder that it was a bad idea for him to raise at that valuation because it was setting him up for failure. And now he's raised at six times the valuation they gave him and three times what we would have given him. So it's like, that's where we try to be competitive because those are, it's like, what do the customers care about those three things? And how do you offer a product to them that like fulfill the needs that they're actually looking to, that they're looking for? So were you saying that our European valuations should uh, get on par with uh, the ones in the US? Uh, I think if you f fast forward like 10 years, yeah, pretty much. I think the M&A ecosystem in Europe is still really shitty. Um, like the, of the top 30 most acquisitive companies in the world, there's only one European business and that's SAP. The others are all American businesses. And the way those businesses are structured are like the corporate development teams are still in the US. The C, like the C level are still in the US. So in order for you to be acquired as a European business, it's a lot more challenging to kind of get the, get the attention. But, you know, that being said, one of the biggest acquisitions of the year so far has been the U.S. company acquiring us like Square acquiring Afterpay in Australia. So, like, I think, again, this like global world being more interconnected, we're going to see more like I think there's going to be a bit of pushback against like, oh, we're acquiring like remote companies. How is this all going to work? Uh, or like these companies are like, I still think like if you look at the Deliveroo's IPO, like European exchange, European stock exchanges are still a really bad place to go public because the institutional investors, they suck. Like it was like, you've got all these like, like London asset managers <laughs> who are just like, they just don't get it in the way that the US guys do. So like in, you know, in the US, like Tiger Global are going to like, they're going to invest in all your private rounds. Then they're going to put 200 million into your IPO. And then there's like a whole bunch of other assets 
asset managers who you've never even heard of who are all buying into the IPO and holding for 10 plus years. While we just don't, like old money Europe still doesn't get tech. And, you know, eventually that will come to bite them, but I think it's still probably 10 years out. So the valuation discount that exists in Europe right now is discounting for the current situation. Um, but I think that does change over time. Um, just all of the valuations are going to skew to this kind of more natural global level. Uh, but it's not yet. Yeah, it doesn't happen overnight. Right. Right. Makes sense. Okay. So uh, my last question was, I really wanted to uh, ask you to paint uh, let's say a bigger picture of your vision, uh, the way you look at the Irish uh, tech ecosystem, because I don't, I can't say I do uh, write a lot about the Irish ecosystem. I haven't, uh, haven't really written about an Irish startup in a, in a long time, I think. So what's, what's going on? Uh, what uh, have you been seeing over the past few years? What are the challenges? How do you see it? Yeah. Like I think, so there was a, a big boom in Irish tech companies around the first dot-com boom. There was a company called Cape, the Cape Clear. There was a company called Baltimore Technologies. There was a company called uh, Iona Technologies that like at one point, I think Baltimore was like worth $27 billion and a ton of people lost all their money because it was the dot-com boom and everything went to shit. And I think that kind of like scarred a lot of people away from tech for a while. So like people went back to more like risk averse jobs and like 2008, 2009, again, there were no jobs. So like people went back to like thinking about starting companies. And one of those companies that was started in 2011 was Intercom. Uh, there was another one started like Fleetmatics had been around for a while. And like these were sort of the first like next generation of tech companies after a sort of long hiatus. And you know, what we've seen in the last couple of years is like, you have this huge US multinational presence that was previously just sales and marketing. That's now changed where they're also hiring a lot of engineering functions in Dublin. And a lot of those people are now starting to spill over and have the skill sets that can actually be useful in starting companies, not just operating companies at scale. So like in the last five years, like if you look at basically the between 2011 and 2021, the only there's another one called Work Human, but it had been around for longer. But the only unicorn really in a classic startup journey out of Ireland was Intercom, which is pretty bad for a VC. Like if you've only one chance at a billion dollar outcome in 10 years, it's not a great market to be investing in. I would say like in the next five years, we're probably going to see like five, like at least five to 10 billion dollar companies come out of Ireland just because of the way the ecosystem has matured. And as companies like Intercom and this other company, Work Human, start to reach liquidity points, whether it's through IPOs or M&A, like the early employees who worked at them are going to become angel investors. They're going to continue to pump money back into the ecosystem. And it's that classic, you know, eventually the ecosystem flywheel picks up. It takes a lot of time, but you just have good people working good companies that scale who learn the skills who go and work in other companies or found new companies and bring previous teams with them from those companies and you know i think there's a huge amount of talent particularly technical talent in ireland that a lot of it used to go to the us because they just didn't think they could build their business there so like the collison brothers classic example really smart guys went over and built stripe in the us because like why would you try to build it in ireland that's insane there's nobody there for you um, I think it's like, and that just the flywheel, what's happening, like there's so many interesting companies, there's Tynes, there's Inscribe, there's WorkVivo, there's like, you know, Evervault, 
like I could, you know, I could basically list 10 companies that all have like tier one US European investors around the table who are all willing to back those companies like to, and see like very big opportunities in their futures. Um, and if just a handful of those companies are successful, it's just going to keep kicking that flywheel on. So like, I think it's like Ireland is probably its own, like it is a small country. It's only 5 million people. So like you can't build a big business selling to Irish companies. So again, similar to ourselves, all of those companies think international from day one. And because they think international from day one, they're just better geared up for success in the current markets and how people currently buy software. So yeah, no, I've got, I've got pretty high, I'd be like very bullish on the future of Ireland and the future of Irish startups. Um, it, but it's like all these things, it's like London is five years behind San Francisco. Ireland is like, like Dublin is like three years behind London, three to five years behind London. And, you know, all of these ecosystems, if you step your foot off the accelerator, that five years becomes 10 years very, very quickly. So I think it's really important that like, whether it's tech EU, whether it's us, whether it's the accelerators, like, you know, Europe and Ireland, Europe, everyone, we have a really good thing going at the moment. And it's a really great time to be in tech. Like there could be another dot-com scenario where everyone pulls back and you lose another decade. And then suddenly you're gone. While in the US, when there was a pullback, people kept putting their foot on the accelerator and they moved ahead of us again. So I think that's the biggest thing for me is like, it's good to be everyone wants to be pushing forward in the good times and hopefully like please please god the good times will continue for a lot for a lot longer but it's the most it feels like there's been so much good work done in the last 10 years in all of these different ecosystems by so many different people that if we can just keep pushing for another like five years we're gonna that flywheel actually starts to kick off and you have you know so much wealth creation so many interesting companies that benefit so many businesses so many people's lives that it's like a worthwhile endeavor like doing what you can to kind of help the companies and drive the ecosystem forward like whether that's london ireland or anywhere else most certainly Yes. And I still remember uh, on uh, all of those uh, pub crawls uh, that you mentioned uh, uh, in the times that uh, a Web Summit was still in uh, Dublin. One of the topics I remember from the conversation uh, was that uh, uh, a thing that has a negative impact on the Irish startup ecosystem was that uh, all these bigger companies uh, would come and open their offices and basically headhunt uh, all the tech talent and offer huge salaries that startups could not obviously offer and because of that the ecosystem was not growing as uh, quickly as as it could have uh, do you think that's that was the case back then and do you think that is the case uh, now still um i think there's an element of truth there like you know there's like if stripe are offering an engineer a 250k salary it's pretty hard for like now that Stripe are not a startup and they're a hundred billion dollar company, you know, it's hard for a startup to try to compete to hire that person. But at the same time, you know, the fact that Stripe exists and the person is in that company gives that startup a tool to say, hey, we might only be able to pay you 80K, but, you know, you're literally working at the product of where we could be. Like you are working at what we're trying to be one day 
and we can incentivize you with equity to be there and to kind of get there. And I think like part of it is founder, like one of the mindsets that I've seen change in Europe is like, I think normally it, companies are really generous with their equity to their investors and then are like really like tight and frugal when it comes to giving it to their employees. And like, I, like, I don't like, like, this is one of the things, like, I wouldn't ever invest in a company without at least 10 like 10% in their ESOP. Like I've like, we've come, we've actually, it's been one thing where it's like a point of contention when founders are like, oh, we only want to put six or 7% in the ESOP. And, you know, all of these ecosystems, you can complain about like, oh, Facebook won't be there. And I'm like, well, Facebook are going to poach someone from me. And it's like, well, if Facebook are going to poach someone from you, then like, give that person more equity in your business because like you need to incentivize people you know you have to use the tools at your disposal and facebook can't give someone half a percent of their company they can't like make someone an owner and they can't have them be as close to the ceo so i think like as an excuse i don't buy it anymore because startups have the tools to recruit those people a lot of that technical talent has learned how those companies operate at scale they've got familiar with all of their technologies they've built big networks of people who can become great potential hires into these early stage companies and even like just their different skills like how do you be a product like what is product management how does product management work in a SaaS company how do you actually think about with your sales like how do you think about building an S like you know an SDR team how do you think about building an AE team like all of these companies have brought like world-class best in practice into our best best practice into Ireland and rather than looking at it as uh, like you know an obstacle of oh they're stealing all of our talent I think it's a real opportunity for startups to say hey like these people have trained this army of like how to work and operate at a billion dollar company. Now we have to do our job to sell the story of like, wouldn't you like to work at the next end desk? Wouldn't you like to work at the next HubSpot? And that is extremely challenging, but you know, I don't think it's something that like, it's not, it's not impossible. And it's something that if they can do that, right. It's a, uh, it's a really interesting place to be as a startup. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, speaking of uh, speaking of ESOP and options, I still can't get over the fact that Mailchimp was just sold for twelve billion dollars, and it turns out that uh, there was no ESOP to speak about at all. Like nobody, uh, no millionaires were minted <laughs> with that deal. It's it, it's out, like it genuinely like it's stuff like that that when we talk about like getting an ecosystem going, like that could have been if he, if, if Mailchimp had a ten percent ESOP pool. That's $1.2 billion into the hands of employees in Atlanta. And like, sure, a bunch of them are going to buy fancy houses and fancy cars and watches, but a bunch of them will invest in their friends' companies. Absolutely. And a bunch of them will invest in local businesses. And I think that's the thing is like, we need to, that, that if, if you believe in the ecosystem and as an investor and you believe in encouraging people to work at startups, like I, I just, I just did a lunch and learn for one of my portfolio companies where like they're a 45 person company. And I was explaining to the employees why options were a good thing because like in Europe, we're still like, people are terrified of them. Sometimes they're like, Oh, but tax. And I'm like, well, no, no, no. Like you only pay tax if like you're only going to pay the tax if they're actually ever worth something. Like there's ways of doing this where you don't take on that big risk. So like, yeah, I, I think that's, that's the thing where like you look at examples like MailChimp where nobody got anything and it's such a shame to the ecosystem. You look at something like Facebook, like Facebook minted like 
hundreds, like Google and Facebook minted like hundreds, if not thousands of millionaires and multimillionaires that are like a lot, huge portion of like the V, so many of the VC community work were like, we're ex-Googlers. And part of that is like, it's like up until recently, you couldn't start a VC fund unless you had money because the GP commits were so high. But like, again, those companies, those ESOP pools, the way they brought everything about, like part of that is the story of Silicon Valley and the story of how that ecosystem kicked off. And like, hopefully companies like Revolut in London, like So Rare in Paris, you know, like like all these companies around Europe are going to have the same knock-on impact and they're going to have the same effect for their employees that those companies in the US had. Right, absolutely. Now, Finn, okay, I've been, I've, we've been talking for 45 minutes. Uh, I've been uh, taking uh, way too much time, way more than I promised I would. But thanks a lot for taking the time. Thanks a lot for joining today and thanks a lot for the great conversation. And I wish you best of luck with everything you're doing, uh, with the ecosystem, with the frontline and with whatever comes next. Cheers. Thanks so much, Andrea. And that's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. If you like our show, follow us today wherever you listen to podcasts. And if that place has a possibility to rate and review the show, please do that as well. Your questions, suggestions, and opinions are very welcome. Please send them to podcast at tech.eu and they will most certainly be ignored. <laughs>